0: Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to SimpleCast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. Martin Brooks describes himself as an impactologist. He runs a training company that helps managers, media personalities and politicians communicate in a way that delivers real impact. During a thought-provoking chat, Martin and I discussed whether great public speakers are born or made, and we also had great fun analyzing Mark Zuckerberg's speaking style. Before we begin, a big shout out to Simplecast, the sponsor of the Voxing podcast. Many many thanks to them for their continuing support. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today on the fireside with box gig podcast It is great to have you here I'm
1: very pleased to be here. Thanks for the invitation and looking forward to a really interesting chat.
0: awesome so most people who end up speaking at conferences and doing public speaking go through a transition where they were afraid or nervous about speaking and have now reached a point where well, it may still scare them, but they can at least do it professionally. Mm-hmm. Some very few guests that we've had on this podcast, were are either blessed or cursed, depending on how you look at it, We're never afraid of public speaking. And even from a young age, we're always eager to get up on stage. So for you, were you born with the gift or did you have to learn it?
1: <laughs> a little bit of both. A little bit of okay. both. I think one of the things about being on stage and being in front of people, and the reason why people do have some negative feelings towards it is because you're incredibly visible. You're it's one thing to walk up and introduce yourself to a complete stranger, but to stand on stage in front of 10, 15, 20, a hundred, 200 people. Now all of a sudden you take that mathematics and you just multiply it exponentially. So you're visible, you're at, you're at risk. And very often there's almost like phobic type responses to that fear, which for a lot of people are linked back to some negative experiences when they were first asked to speak up in class or whatever. You talk to people and you, you, you dig down a little bit and you often find when you've got a little bit more time that they're what psychologists refer to as primary sensory experience. And you're experiencing something for the first time. Therefore, your brain's going on completely neutral. But if you get a very strong reaction, either really positive or really negative, then that can form a very strong template for people going forward. Like if you've never eaten an avocado before and, or you've never know, you had guacamole which the main constituent of which is avocados and you, somebody says, would well, you fancy trying some avocado or some guacamole and you go, well, gosh, yeah, that sounds fantastic, let's try that yeah. and let's say, for example, the avocado's off, they've put way too much chilli in it, way too much oil and you taste it and you go, well, that's horrible now, if you, six months time, somebody says to you, well, would you like some guacamole? Of course, you're just going to go, no, absolutely not. It was disgusting. I tried it once. and It was horrible. So that's what we call that that primary sensory experience. And if your first experience of public speaking is is quite negative, which unfortunately a lot of people is, then a little bit like a foodstuff you've tried once and you hated it, you're not going to want to do it again. But Professionally then... What is difficult, whilst you can avoid a particular foodstuff, if your employer says, right, now this is part of your role going forward and you've had a, a negative experience in the past, then, of course, that becomes a very, very tricky issue for people where, it can, for a lot of people, it can actually prevent them from moving forward in their career. So I'm kind of making light of it, but it's actually really, really serious. And I think, come back to the original question of some people born with it, I think some people are, are more naturally disposed to enjoying the limelight. But certainly, a lot of people that I've spoken with, and it's certainly true of I me, mean, I have a love-hate relationship. I, I love it, but it scares the pants off me. But there's something quite intriguing about that fear and being able to deal with that fear and moving through it that is quite compelling. It's almost like the moth to the flame type thing, a relationship with it. <laughs>
0: you can't help yourself. Yeah. Did you have a challenging first time speaking experience
1: yeah I, I think i was the other way i think i I had positive experiences okay. of, of speaking up and and i felt quite comfortable with that and i think that that may well be one of the reasons why i'm comfortable with it but i'm still aware of the risks i'm still aware of what's at stake and that creates an appropriate level of performance anxiety. If you know there's a lot at stake, you know, if some of your listeners are presenting a new product launch or something, or they're, they're pitching to a new investor, or you know as part of a selection procedure, they're doing a presentation. And that's why I always get a little bit nervous when people say, I'm not nervous. And I'm going, well, you kind of should be, because there's a lot at stake there should be a degree of performance anxiety. You
0: need that energy. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, it charges you one. It really inspires you if you mentally handle it right. If, you're, if your thinking processes are correct, then you can turn that performance anxiety to your advantage.
0: We do have an interesting counterexample of the benefit of public speaking to one's oh. career. Oh, yeah. In, in the form of one Mark Zuckerberg, don't we? And I believe we have really <laughs> had the pleasure of being asked to analyze his speaking style at some point. But um, let's take that as an example of somebody who as part of their career shall we say mm. was thrust into a situation where they had to learn public speaking it was definitely part of the job yeah and you may be a billionaire or a multi-billionaire but you've still got to get up there and give a talk even if you don't want to mm. and i mean it's it's kind of well known that he was absolutely dreadful at it to begin with yeah but he seems to have progressed he's obviously been coached
1: yeah and it's it's interesting to say it's it's obvious he's been coached and you you're right yeah last year I was asked by the discovery channel to do analysis of Mark Zuckerberg's first U S Senate appearance. And I kind of smiled all the way through it. Cause I've, I've spent years in training and development. I used to work with a company a number of years ago, doing media training for senior executives at London business school, working with seasoned journalists. And there was almost like a scenario of poacher turned gamekeepers, very senior journalists from CNN, from sky, from BBC. And they would put senior executives through their, their paces. And my role was as the presentation coach and following up and making sure they have the tools and techniques, etc. But what that taught me was the tools and techniques that journalists use and, the, and what the do's and don'ts, if you like, of handling those top level things. And you're right, when Mark Zuckerberg was tracked back, I think by he would say himself, he's quite self-confessed of being a nerd, being somebody who's much more comfortable in their computer, and rather than talking to an individual person, never mind a room full of people. So he's well, but what he did have was, and you alluded to it, he's got the finances and got the access to be able to go to top people and go, okay, this is not going to come naturally to me, but tell me what to do, follow the steps. Technology is not one of my strong points. So I will I will speak to somebody who's got much more technical knowledge to me and I'll go, look, just give me step one, step two, step three, and I'll just literally follow the steps because I don't have that skill or aptitude to do more kind of uh, IT related things. And what was interesting for me watching Zuckerberg was I could literally see uh, he was a physical embodiment of the advice that I would give to somebody or that I'd seen journalists give to people in terms of the way he sat. Can you break it down? Yeah, sure. So the initial stage, uh, I don't know if you, ever, if you watched any of it, but there was about a 20 minute setup where the senators are all were saying, you know, basically, this is so terrible. We're here to ask you questions, you know, haul you over the coast type thing. And actually, from memory now, one of the first things, if I backtrack a little bit further, was one of the, the first things that I noticed was the way he walked into the room and what he was wearing when he walked into the room. So, like presenting yourself in a way that's most likely to build a relationship with your audience, which again is something that's probably going to be appropriate to some of your listeners. So, famously, gray t shirt and hoodie jeans, he's of course suited and booted, you know, the way you'd almost never seen Mark Zuckerberg before. And this is physically the way he carried himself. He walked into the room, shoulders back, looking eyes at eye level, making full eye contact with all of the photographers and anybody who wants to take his picture, looking straight at them, standing, shoulders square on, feet wide apart, really physically displaying confidence. I'm confident, I'm taking ownership, I'm absolutely not shrinking away from the challenge. And then the second part was when he was sitting there listening to all of these uh, senators basically pull him and his business apart, just didn't move, just sat with his arms wide apart on the desk, projecting strength, projecting confidence, of course didn't touch his nose or his ear or put his hands over his mouth, any of the things that you might associate with deception or uncomfortableness. He'd, and nobody sits still for that long. So he'd obviously been coached in terms of, look, Everything you do is going to be analyzed. So there's a, there's a chance that it will be misinterpreted. Just don't do anything. Wow. And then you, there's nothing there for people to go, ah, he's clearly X, Y, or Z, because he wouldn't have given them the evidence to do that. So, And then in terms of the way he answered questions, certainly one of the media techniques that he was using from memory was something called past, present, future. Yeah. And this was a, a technique for handling difficult questions about or your organization has messed something up that you, in order to to rebuild the relationship, you firmly plant that scenario in the past. So in the past, yes, we didn't, you know, you think about an an ordinary commercial organization, we didn't have the processes in place or it was new, or we had a change of staff, or, you know, we were under particular pressure at that particular point in time, whatever justification they will have for the event happening. And then they, they look to leave the bad news in the past. And then they talk about the present. So today what we're doing is these are the, the steps that were taken on the investigations that are ongoing. Or if it's been an older incident, they may say these are the procedures that we now have. So that in the future, our customers, our shareholders, our clients can all be confident that. And, of course, Zuckerberg, he gets asked questions about privacy and releasing information. And, of course, no surprise to me, he goes, well, when I started Facebook in my dorm room, you know, we had no idea what we were doing, no idea. So I went, okay, here we go. I bet you this is going to be a past, present, future. And, of course, that's exactly what he did.
0: In a conference talk scenario, these techniques are perhaps more useful for the... um questions you Mm. get after the talk because in my experience giving conference talks you often get show-offs in the audience who want to try and take you down a peg or two or at least show off that they have some extra knowledge or they can poke a hole in something that you've said yeah so you often have to think on your feet yeah to maintain your credibility and and kind of come back with some sort of response so this past present future thing is quite a useful technique yeah so to break it down the, the past is you acknowledge that there was an issue in the past and then in the present
1: you talk about what the the actions that you're taking and that you've learned from that okay. and again past scenario so you you're associating the negativity with the past not the present and certainly not the future it's your way of distancing Uh, Whilst acknowledging, but also distancing from the event of it currently or
0: reoccurring in the future. And the future is about the great new hope.
1: Oh, the shiny future, how everything's going to be wonderful because the lessons have been learned, the policies have been put into place, the people, the procedures, whatever the, the learnings were that have been taken from the past mistake. But you're right in that. Depending upon the scenario, in a lot of commercial sectors, actually, the present, if you look at the mix in terms of, are we going to give you the job? Are we going to give you the contract if you're a senior salesperson? Are we going to invest in you as a venture capitalist? Then often, it's quite heavily weighted, not not so much towards the presentation. That's almost like you've got to pass the presentation to be in the game. Now, the real evaluation will take place in terms of how well you answer questions, and how well you answer particularly tricky questions. And depending upon your audience, you can get everything from people who are just curious, you know, I'm interested in, to people who want you to feel, yeah. <laughs> quite frankly, and, and everything within that spectrum. So you have to expect difficult questions. In fact, I was working with a company last week And it's a family run business and they're going to sell. They're talking to three investors. One of the big four accountancy firms is is handling that sale for them. And they had hired me to look at their, their mini presentations, but then also how they handle the questions. And we spent 70% of the time that we had together thinking about the questions. I often use the analogy of most democracies in around the world, Uh, Certainly in the UK, where I'm based, there's every week the members of parliament get the opportunity to ask the prime minister's question times.
0: Oh, yes. What the
1: conventions or the rules are that any MP wants to ask a question, they have to submit their questions in writing. And then the prime minister will take whatever number it is every week. There's There's a cap to the number that they take. Now, you have to submit your question in writing. And now, of course, that gives the prime minister and the cabinet and everybody else the opportunity to think about what a good answer would be. Gather the relevant statistics, etc, but the killer is that you are allowed a follow-up question that you don't submit in advance. Uh, yes. Now, the, the convention is that, you, that the second question has to be related to the first. You can't ask a question about the health service and then the second question and be on defense. There has to be a theme, they have to be connected. that's the unwritten rule. So, of course, yes, the prime minister and the cabinet office and the ministers will sit down. They'll spend you know, a good chunk of their time finding a really good answer to that first question. But what they spend most of their time preparing for is that second question. We're, you know, It's almost like the little jab. Then there's the big you know, right hook that comes after it. It's like, what's the second question? So I call that, my preparation when I'm working with clients, the, the worst possible question technique. When, what's the worst question you could get? I love it. Wow. So you really absolutely anticipate, you know, just in your most worst nightmares that when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat, those questions, prepare for those. Because when you prepare for those kinds of questions, the questions you actually get will be a breeze. So that part is really, really important. And I've I've seen people fail to anticipate questions. Or uh, as a good colleague of mine says, you know, it, it, one of his favorite quotes is "Hope is not a strategy," you know, whereby you say, oh, I hope that hope we don't get asked that. It's like, well, what if you do? Oh no! Oh, well, we just we just hope we won't. It's yeah, like that's I hope is right. not a strategy because a <laughs> long enough that timeline, that's going to happen, and of course, your credibility then is is really under scrutiny if you can't answer what anybody would deem to be a relevant question really, really well. And of course, you're in a competitive environment. If somebody else answers a similarly difficult question better, then they have the commercial advantage. They're more likely to get the job, get the investment, or or win the sale.
0: Let's stick with questions for a moment. And, and I have to say, for anybody who's not that familiar with the whole idea of Prime Minister's Question Time in the UK Parliament, go on YouTube. There's tons of stuff there.
1: <laughs> yeah, entertaining. There
0: stuff. is actually a great channel called uh, TLDR News, which has all the good stuff. And it, we are blessed at the moment. Fortunately, in the UK, <laughs> the UK itself is not blessed at the moment with its current crop of politicians. But we're blessed in the sense that UK Parliament has this amazing speaker. who's was just a, a wonderful yes. performance artist,
1: Tom Burke. Yeah.
0: So apparently, the speakers have to get voted in, and they give speeches to the rest of Parliament to say, "You know, vote for me." Mm. Go and look for his speeches because they're absolutely amazing, and they're not political speeches. They're they're sort of um, they have to be entertaining and funny, but and yet persuade the members of Parliament to to vote for them. Fantastic stuff. Sticking with the subject of questions, so Mm. take us back to a time when you completely fluffed the answer to a question and walk us through what you did wrong.
1: Wow, there is a good question. (laughs) Ah, Ah, there you go. Honestly, I can't think of a time where I've really messed up a question, but I can certainly think of a number of times where I fell into a trap. Okay. And I now share this with other people, where under that performance anxiety. And it's like, you know, the fear of silence must start talking, must start saying something. Mm. And I've started an answer and I'm about a sentence or maybe half a sentence into it. And there's almost like that time lag in my brain where I've gone, nah, that's not what I really wanted to say. Or actually the answer that I should be now saying is this. And then there's that very awkward mental gymnastics piece where you now now need to finish what you're saying without sounding entirely incoherent and then bridging to the answer that you should have given or I should have given a few moments beforehand. And I'm experienced enough now to, to recognize that mistake I've certainly made a couple of times in the past. Where I'm, I'm, I'm talking, and a little voice in the back of my head goes, "This isn't the right answer." You know, whatever you're saying now isn't isn't particularly correct. So, what I coach people to do, and what I also now do myself is, and you may have noticed it there when you asked yeah. me that question, just took some time to think. We put ourselves under ridiculous performance pressure to start speaking too quickly, and I'm always reminded of one of my favorite Oscar Wilde quotes, which is. Better to keep your mouth shut and people think you are an idiot than to open it and confirm it beyond all reasonable doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's the favorite. Which is, as people from the Northern Ireland would say, that's a cracker. (laughs) So the idea of just take a second. And one of the top tips I always give people is to breathe in. Breathing in has three key advantages. Number one, it will fire up the brain with the fuel that it needs, oxygen. And so therefore, you'll recall statistic stories, you'll just do computation, you'll think faster and of a higher quality. Secondly, it's a physiological thing. and the act of breathing in, it prevents you making sound. So you're not going to oh. do any of these horrible filler signs that you hear people do, go, uh, mm, uh, which is basically a vocal way of saying, I've no idea what I want to say, but I'm thinking, you
0: know. So this is an interesting technique because you could use it even while you're giving a talk. Absolutely. Instead of saying, uh, you could just breathe in.
1: For sure, yeah. So actually, I said three things, didn't I? So it will oxygenate the brain, prevents you from saying something and, and like i said the mistake that i've made in the past started speaking too quickly and saying something where you're like, oh, that's not quite right and the third thing is with that super oxygenated brain you've actually got more time to formulate a higher quality answer so it's a really good technique in terms of making sure that when you do speak it's something that you actually want to say and not semi-regret or or realized it, but a bit of quality control and realize that you should be saying something else. Because then you got to do the mental gymnastics of bridging from what you are saying to what you wanted to say. And that's where things like uhs and nums actually do start coming back into play. And they, and they always reduce a person's particular impact if there's a high frequency of them. So it's something that I do a lot of
0: work with clients on. I have to say congratulations. A fantastic example of an application of a technique in practice. <laughs> because I do tend to sometimes go for the throat with some of the questions. Because that's where you learn the interesting stuff. Yeah. But you were very nice. There was the pause of the intake and instead of just starting to blabber and say stuff and then you've been speaking for 30 seconds and you suddenly realize what your answer should be and now you have to segue somehow. Yes. Yeah. Which is exactly what you were talking about. So well done. Yeah.
1: Been there, done that, got the scar tissue, determined not to do it again. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: In terms of talk preparation. So let's say you're, you, you mm-hmm. know that you're going to be giving a talk reasonably large Audience, as you say, there are stakes involved. You do have a certain level of nervousness. And you might have, I don't know, three months preparation time. So walk us through, how do you you prepare from three months out right up to the point where you're walking onto the stage?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a whole process that I go through of of mental anguish in order to look uh, cool, calm, and collected on the day. And three months is actually probably quite a good period, actually, in terms of <laughs> going through all the relevant anguish that one needs to go through. you do it all the last
0: week, don't you, Martin? Yeah, exactly, in order
1: to deliver on the day. So the starting point for me in a presentation, whether I've got 30 seconds notice or, or 30 days notice, is the audience. Yeah. Who are they? What are their criteria? If it's a conference, the first thing is, you know, who's it for? Is it industry specific? Is it general? What's the theme of the conference? You know, what are the key things they're looking for? All that background of who you're actually talking to. So a lot of people do, oh, great. I've been invited to a conference. Marvelous. And they fire up PowerPoint and start putting in their stuff. So they, for me, really successful presenters don't do that. The vast majority of their focus on the audience. Who are they? If it's a conference, what's the theme of the conference? Who else is on stage? I even say to conference organizers, you've come to me, you've seen my background. What is it about my background or my topics that you think will fit well into the conference that you've got? Great question I like to ask conference organizers is if somebody in the audience came up to you as the conference organizer and said, Martin was a brilliant speaker because... What would they say? And that starts to really yeah. get the organizer to think about because they know the audience better than I do as a speaker often, and certainly most of the time. And that's a really great question to ask a conference organizer, you know, flip forward three months after Martin's just come off stage. You know, to rapturous applause, and a couple of people have come over to you and said, Oh, Martin was brilliant on stage because, dot, dot, dot. What are they saying to you? And that can often give you really good information as well as part of that whole mix. Going, okay, so how do I take what I'm comfortable talking about and line it up with that audience? What are the key points then? How do I make those key points? How long have I got, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And you start putting all of that information together. And I let all this stuff percolate for as long as I possibly can, long before I come to design. I'm somebody I like to come in, think about something for about an hour, go off and do something else and have five or six different projects that I'm going to go at any one point in time. And just allow myself to percolate and think, and it'll be fairly close. Let's say you said three months. I doubt I would put anything on a PowerPoint deck or anything like that more than four to six weeks out. I would just be allowing myself to gather information and think before starting putting the design together. And in four to six weeks is a good time to start designing and, and revising and fine tuning. And then, of course, practicing, which is a huge part.
0: Yes. Some of the guests we've had on here like to plan very far ahead. And some of them, myself included, like, like to stay up the night before doing the final bit of the slides. <laughs> I've had, I've had...
1: You need that performance anxiety <laughs> yeah. before you get that motivation.
0: I run a couple of meetups as well. Uh, we had one chap speaking last week, finishing his slides, uh, literally as the first speaker was was on. so' probably mm-hmm. taking it a little too far. Yeah. I mean, I think the essential thing is you have to accept that preparation is going to be some part of it. And I think people often dive into preparation from an internal perspective and they don't give enough time to communication with the, the host of the event. Yeah, And of course, just asking direct questions sometimes doesn't really give you much extra information, but I, I really like that question, which is Martin's been a wonderful speaker. Explain to me why that's a really great technique. Yeah.
1: yeah. I've, I've, I've learned that over the years, it does give you another, another insight, but there's, there's a flip side to the coin as well in terms of certain things. It joins back to your questions about preparation and a mistake I often see people make is that they go, well, I don't know what I'm going to be asked to speak about. And therefore, I don't need to do any preparation. And I think that's a huge mistake. And let me give you an example Mm. of that. So, 2016, I was asked to go down to uh, Wales. The Welsh Assembly were having national elections, and they were having the leadership debate. You know, the, the leaders of all the main parties doing leadership debate, which was on the main BBC One channel. And then there was the half hour show afterwards, of was, was the analysis show, which was broadcast live on BBC Two. And I was one of the experts who was then going to be asked a question about what had happened, etc. And the journalist who was interviewing me came around before the show and said, look, here's the deal. It's a half hour show. We have 120 people in the room. There are 20 people who are guaranteed a question. You're one of them whether you get a second question or not depends upon the quality of the answer to the first question so if your first answer is per it's live tv i'm going to have my producer in my in my ear she's just going to say move on and that's exactly what i'm going to do so it's like you know okay live tv i'm going to get one question if i screw it up they're just going to move on they're being very very clear yeah. now you could argue that i you couldn't prepare for that but i certainly did i thought about what am I likely to get? Or from my point of view, I did a bit of research in terms of, okay, living in England, I hadn't really been paying much attention to national elections in Wales, a separate country, yeah. even though it's part of the UK. So I didn't know any of the politicians. So I had to do a bit of, bit of research. Okay. So I started doing some some research. And what I noticed is that one of the party leaders in one of the previous debates was really good at looking into the camera and doing that, what they call piece to camera. So really they give you the opening two minute statement or whatever. And one of the other party leaders, whenever he did an opening statement, he kept on looking down at his notes. Okay. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting trait. So I wonder if he's going to do that. So I was doing some research. So I didn't know what I was going to get asked, but I had a pretty good idea some of the things that they, they might ask me. It's like, they might ask me who did I think one and, and why would I think that? So. That was a bit of pre-research. And then, of course, watching the thing live on television with a a, a pen and pad in front of me sitting in the studio waiting for them to cut over to the studio. This party leader started doing exactly the same thing. So he he looked into camera, looked down, looked into camera, looked down. And I just started counting. So I I did it 22 times in his opening statement. So then my first question was, And you mentioned walking the talk earlier. The interviewer, she said to me, you know, who do you think won and why? And I sort of think this person won. And the reason why I think that was because they did this, unlike the other candidate who looked down at his notes 22 times in his opening pitch. And she went, 22 times? What, really? And I said, yeah, I was counting them. That's a particular behavioral trait in contrast to the other person who looked straight into camera. He looked like he was speaking from his heart rather than from his, his notes. So that first answer, I didn't know for sure what the question was, but I, I could put an educated guess. And I knew if I was going to have an opinion, I better have something to be able to back it up, particularly in my field where it can be seen as quite fluffy and unscientific. It's really important to have some killer stats. Yeah. So the fact that I was counting the number of times did, and I was able to hit an exact number, he did it 22 times in his opening pitch. And that's what captured the attention. And I did get a second question and a third question. In fact, in a 30 minute program, I got a full two minute section. <laughs> you won the program. That was a huge win. Yeah. Even though I, I didn't know what I was going to get asked, I have a reasonable idea. And I, I anticipated and thought about what might I get asked? How would I validate that? Who am I talking about? So I was able to do quite a lot of research and that, really paid off because i did as i said i got a second question a third question and actually on my pinned tweet on twitter i said i do believe experts should be able to walk their talk so in my first answer on my first live vision appearance i use three techniques that i teach other people and you can go online and you can watch me do them and i can talk oh, you through
0: fantastic now yeah, what's your twitter handle just let me know
1: impactologist so as the word impact a second t and then of olog- impactologist
0: very good and we'll put that in the show notes fantastic with that let's add on a high note because that's a fabulous result martin this has been great thank you so much
1: you're more than welcome an absolute pleasure talking with richard
0: wonderful thank you so much for listening just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with Vox Gig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgeek.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.